This morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. We come to Acts chapter 22 and verse 22. And we're going to be talking this morning about strategies for uh, dealing with hostility. Now we do face hostility in this world because of the gospel. But the good news is, is that we shall prevail. That's the whole uh, message, the whole idea of the book of Acts. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 22 this morning, we find the Apostle Paul facing fierce opposition from a mob led by a group of Asian Jews. And he has been uh, caught in the temple and uh, savagely, savagely beaten. And the it was only because of the intervention of the Roman soldiers that he has survived. Now, there's a Roman commander by the name of uh, Lysias or Claudius Lysias, and he is trying to find out what is happening. What's, why are the Jews so upset? What's causing this riot? He's been unable to find it so far, but he has allowed Paul to address the angry uh, mob from the steps of Fort Antonia. And Paul used that opportunity to give his personal testimony to tell how that Jesus had, had intercepted his life, had transformed him, and had given him a, a totally new mission. Now, when Paul mentions that this commission that Christ has given him is to go to the Gentiles, well, the rioting just erupts all again. And boy, were they angry. When you look at Acts chapter 22 and verse 22, it says they listened to him up to this statement and they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out, they were throwing off their cloaks and tossing dirt or dust into the air. Now they're screaming at the top of their voices to kill Paul. He doesn't even deserve to live on this earth. And boy, I mean, they mean business because they're taking off their outer garments. That's what you did when you were getting ready to do physical work, when you were getting ready to stone someone. They couldn't find any rocks laying there in the temple court, so they just grab whatever dirt they can find and they begin to throw it. They're so irate. Now, the hostility that they feel toward Paul is intense. And it's intense because their hostility toward the Jew, toward the Gentiles was intense. And their hostility toward Jesus, whom they perceived to be a false Messiah, was intense. In John chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, most of the people sitting in this room here today simply do not feel the intensity of that, those words. 
When we think about Jesus and the apostles and Paul, that seems like something way off, way back there in ancient history. The, the animosity, the hostility that they experienced. It, it's, it's like it's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with our lives today. But let me assure you that many, in many parts of the world today, are experiencing extreme hostility and persecution because of the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can't see it because it's not in the media. Media doesn't cover those kind of things unless it's something very extreme. Rarely do they they cover any of that. Most of us have kind of watched probably in the last week. We've looked at the news and we've seen flyovers of the Bahamas. And you've seen the incredible destruction that that hurricane left there. Just a, a nation in shambles. If you could fly over China... North Korea, some of the Muslim nations, and you could see with spiritual eyes what is is happening in terms of persecution, it would look like you were flying over the Bahamas after that hurricane. Friends, it is intense. People are being intimidated, beaten, imprisoned, tortured, tortured, and killed. And, and, and it, it just does not seem like a reality to us at all, but it is happening. And there are some people in our nation that are beginning to feel some of the, uh, the weight of that. And what Jesus says is that if, if you're a follower of mine, that's going to happen. Sometimes it's not going to happen in every area of the world, but it ha- it's happening. And, and, and though it, it seemed like chaos there in Jerusalem, God was sovereign over everything that was happening there. And in, and in this passage uh, we're, that we're going to look at today, uh, we can extract four strategies for dealing with hostility. But before we go on, I want to I pause And I want to make sure that we put the emphasis where it belongs. Not on human strategies, not on human ingenuity, but on the sovereign providence of God himself. See, because it is God who is at work in the midst of this. And God is using someone like the Apostle Paul. He uses his own personality, his own intellect, his uh, credentials, his education, his circumstances, his experiences to guide him through the hostility that he faces in order to accomplish what he wants. And God does the same for us as well. He uses us in our own individual personalities and, and experiences, and he can guide us through that. These, but these are some strategies that he calls to our attention. They're not spelled out for us. They're not listed for us in the text, but they are there present in the experience and the example of the Apostle Paul. And so from that sense, they have to be extracted, they have to be called to our attention so that we can make use of them in our lives today. And so... With that, let's see if we can, we can extract these, these four principles. First, the first uh, strategy is exercise your civil rights. 
Now, the Roman commander was in a difficult situation here because he had let Paul speak to that uh, riotous crowd in hopes of discovering what the real problem was. See, Lysias couldn't put an end to the problem until he knew what, what was happening. He couldn't deal with it. He couldn't resolve it until he knew what was happening. So he thought, well, I'll find out what's happening. They're talking, and all of a sudden the crowd just erupts into a ride, and he's going, what? What happened? I don't get it. So he's trying to figure it out. And, and, and so his next step in resolving the issue, it says in verse 24, was to have Paul brought into the barracks and examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Now, scourging was, was, a, was a horrible Roman torture process. It involved a, a, a flagellum, a, a whip with a, with a wooden handle and attached to that wooden handle were straps of leather seven to nine uh, in the intermediate and the uh, tips of those straps were pieces of bone or metal and they would take that uh, they would take that strap take a person they would stretch them tight around a column or some other structure uh, so that their skin was very tight and that Roman soldier called a lictor who was a professional executioner would use that whip lay it across the back and he would just literally cut the back open and it was so gruesome that oftentimes people's intestines would be literally torn out Many people died simply from blood loss, others from infection, and if they did survive that horrible torture, they were scarred so badly that they were debilitated for life. And this was something that no one wanted to go. Now, Paul has never experienced this. Paul's been beaten many times with rods. He's been hit, beaten with lashes from the Jews, but he's never been scourged. And so... In, ver- in preparation, verse 25 says the guards, they stretched out, stretched him out with thongs to make his body taut and to, to magnify the effects of this flagellations. Fortunately, Roman citizens were exempt from any kind of scourging. And it says, in, it continues in verse 25, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And Paul's just, he remains very calm. He's not cursing these soldiers for what they're doing to him. He just very simply asks the question, are you aware that you're about to violate my rights as a Roman citizen? This was a very serious issue. And it's so serious that when the, the, the commander that is overseeing this, the centurion that's overseeing this, hears it, he runs to Lysias and he tells him, do you know what you're doing? Uh, verse uh, 26, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. Now, to subject a Roman citizen to scourging could have cost Lysias his career and possibly even his life. And so he's gravely concerned, and he goes personally back to Paul, and it says, the commander came and said to him, verse 27, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes, 
Now, most of the time, that was taken at face value because the penalty for making a false claim of Roman citizenship was death. And so the commander answered, verse 28, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Now, Lysias' remark that I acquired the citizenship with a large sum of money tells us, shows us the value of Roman citizenship. I mean, this man had invested a huge amount of money in order to become a Roman citizen. And you think about how valuable that could be because it had, it had, uh, it had uh, benefits that went beyond, you know, uh, material value. To, to have that right, to have those protections uh, was incredibly valuable. You think about all the people that want to come to the United States. Why? Because they want all the benefits that come with being a citizen, I can, I can remember uh, a man in, in Fort Worth, uh, he was uh, telling me his story about how he and his family had crossed the river from Vietnam to get away, to get out of that, uh, out of that nation for the sake of, uh, because of the persecution of their, they were believers. And this, this man at the time, he was a young boy, his, his mother and his father, his older sister, he and his younger brother were all crossing the river at night, swimming across, holding on to a piece of wood, trying to evade uh, the, the guards there. And the, they were detected, and the guards began to shoot. They shot into the river uh, countless times. Only he and his little brother made it across, and he made it with a, with a bullet hole in his leg. And he, he pulled up his pants and showed me the, the bullet hole in his leg. Why? Why would people, they give up everything to evade the persecution to become a citizen. These things are incredibly valuable. And Paul says, and here Paul says, well, I was a, I was born a citizen. Now, if you think about this, Lysias may have been saying, you know, boy, I'm glad that I just didn't throw all that away by unlawfully scourging a Roman citizen. Or he could have been saying, boy, I'm not sure you guys really know how valuable a gift you have. And so I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm not sure. We, all, we always know what a valuable gift we have in our citizenship as uh, American citizens. And look what happens. He says, um, verse 29, therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Now, he doesn't release him from custody, but he does take the chains off. And here's a great example of God's sovereign providence. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. We don't know how he came to be a Roman citizen. Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. All that we know is that in God's sovereign purposes, Saul of Tarsus was born into this world a Roman citizen. 
And God, in his providence, not only used that to release Paul from scourging, but allowed him to go and to Rome and to stand before Caesar himself and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the leader of the, of the, of the known world. And in God's providence, there may be times when we use our civil rights in order to continue to serve him and to proclaim the name of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying, it's a legitimate strategy to use God's providence in putting us where he's put us, to make use of what he has shown us. As a citizen of the United States, you're guaranteed religious freedom. I mean, the First Amendment of our Constitution allows for individuals and groups the free practice of religion or to abstain from practice altogether without government interference. And you see, there are times when we as believers can and should exercise our civil rights. Now, those are being pushed all the time. You can look, you can scan the news and there are stories all over the place of Christians who are being persecuted because of their faith of their position. Probably the one of the the most well known in our news would be the um, Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's owned by Jack Phillips who is a Christian and he has been persecuted severely by the state of Colorado. The hostility began when uh, a, a couple, a gay couple, came in and, and asked him to make a cake for their wedding. But he refused because he said, that goes contrary to my religious convictions. And so the, the, they brought up a discrimination case against him. And the, and the Colorado Civil Rights Commission claimed that Jack Phillips had violated... Colorado law, and they prohibited him from making cakes for any wedding unless he was willing to make cakes for these uh, uh, same-sex weddings. And Phillips appealed to the Colorado Appellate Court. They upheld the ruling of the Colorado Commission, and then he appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court. They refused to hear his case. But the United States Supreme Court did hear his case. And in June of 2018, they ruled that Colorado had shown extreme bias against Jack Phillips in this situation and that they could not treat him differently than any other baker. Now, this was considered a huge victory for religious freedom. But less than a month after this ruling was handed down, a transgender attorney walked into Jack's cake shop and asked him to bake a cake, blue on the outside, pink on the inside, symbolizing his, uh, his transition from male to female. Of course, Jack refused again on the basis of his religious convictions. And then another case has been brought to him and, and the court Colorado has, uh, has been persecuting him for a year. Just this last week, it was announced that Colorado is dropping their case as, a, as, the, as the state 
but the transgender has not dropped his civil case. So, from 2012 all the way to 2019, this has been in the courts. And it's likely to be in the courts for many days to come. When the Apostle Paul stepped foot in Jerusalem, it went to court. He's in court. And what does he do? One of the first things he does, he has to appeal to his civil rights for a protection. But the rest of his life, as we look from here, chapter, 20, chapter uh, 21, all the way to the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is in court. But listen, God is in charge of all that. God is overseeing that. And even though Paul is in court, Paul is having opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to stand before unbelieving people and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. God oversees it all. God's got a purpose in it all, what he allows. And sometimes exercising our civil rights is a legitimate means of dealing with the hostility against the gospel. Now, there's a second strategy that we can see in this passage. And, and, that's, and this is the one that I would choose above all other strategies. If I only got one strategy, this is the one I would take, and it's this, maintain a clear conscience. Maintain a clear conscience. Look at verse 30 of chapter 22. He says, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Boy, Lysias is determined to get to the bottom of what is going on. This is not going to happen on his watch. And man, he thinks he calls together the assembly of the leaders apart from the mob because he thinks, well, it'll be a little more civil, it'll be a little quieter, and I can get to the bottom of this. But it says in chapter 23 in verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That word, looking intently, is a word that means to fix the eyes or to stare. Paul looks around the room into the eyes of everybody there. He wants to know his audience. And remember, Paul was a former Pharisee. Paul grew up in Jerusalem under the tutelage of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He had worked for the Sanhedrin persecuting Christians. And and though it had been 20-some years or more, uh, there were people that he personally knew standing there. Paul is evaluating who it is that he is speaking to. And he addresses them as brethren, as equals, rather than as uh, rulers and elders, as Peter did earlier. And Paul begins his defense with a statement of his integrity. A statement of his integrity. Folks, integrity is a valuable, valuable, valuable commodity in our world. 
There is very little of it. But integrity is to be valued highly. And understand that this is not a statement that Paul has never sinned. In fact, in, in, first, in Timothy, first Timothy chapter 1 and verse uh, 15, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. He acknowledges sin. What Paul is saying is that everything that I have done, I have done with a confidence that I was doing what God wanted me to do. All these things. And he's trying to explain to these people. He's picking up his defense where it left off the day before. And he's explaining to them why has there been this, this huge change, this shift in the apostles Paul's life. And Paul's explaining. So listen, before that, I was, a, I was persecuting Christians, followers of Jesus. I was persecuting them because I was convinced in the depth of my being that it was against God, that it was against the law, and I was doing what God wanted me to do. But Jesus Christ intercepted my life. He intervened. He, he confronted me. He transformed me. He gave me a whole new mission. And, and now... It, it, you, it, to you, it might look like apostasy. It might look crazy, but I am convinced with everything within me that I am doing exactly what God wants me to do. And you see, when you have a clear conscience, you can stand strong against the world. When everybody, nobody else sees what it means, you know in the depth of your being that you are being obedient to God. That's what enables you to be able to say what you need to say. That's what allows any preacher who really knows Christ and who, who has truly has a clear conscience can stand and proclaim the truth. Because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's what God says that really matters. So, he, he is concerned about the will of God. Now, when Mike Paul makes this little statement, though, man, it, it just erupts into a whole new conflict. And we pick up in chapter 23 and verse 2, and it says, The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Now, that word strike means a full-force blow in the mouth. Fifth, wham. The apostle Paul is human, Right? What do you do when somebody punches you in the mouth? I cry and run away. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes you angry, doesn't it? It upsets you. And some guys, when you punch them in the mouth, well, you know, it's going to be a brawl, right? And some guys, when you punch them in the mouth, it's going to be a lecture. You know those kind of guys? They don't retaliate with their fists. They retaliate with their tongue. And boy, they can cut you up with that tongue. The Apostle Paul was a tongue kind of guy. <laughs> and he's coming back in retaliation, but he's doing it with his tongue, not his fists. And look what he says, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. So you sit and try, you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck. 
Now, this was a major burn to the high priest. But Paul, Paul was calling him a hypocrite. Like Jesus calling the, the Pharisees a whitewashed tomb. He said, you, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of, of death and decay and rot. But I, I think more likely this is a reference to what Ezekiel said to the people to whom he was, uh, who he saw whitewashing the walls of Jerusalem. And they were about to be destroyed. The army was marching in from the Babylonians and they're getting ready to tear the thing down. They're about to experience judgment and they're whitewashing the walls. And you know that that what Paul said was true? Ananias was a hypocrite. He was an evil man. Every historian that you read about Ananias has nothing but negative to say about him. I could list all the horrible things he did. And a few years later, and exactly what Paul said would happen, happened. A few years later, Ananias was assassinated by Jewish rebels. But even so, Paul blew it. He's human. He messes up. And verse 4 says, but, but the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Even here, in the the, the heat of the moment, Paul maintains a clear conscience. He says, "I, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. In other words, I didn't do it intentionally, but it was still wrong. Paul acknowledges the reality is. Now, now think about this. Uh, Paul is meeting with these people in a, in, a, in a setting that they've never been before. This is arranged by Claudius Lysias. They're not in their official seats. They're not in their official robes. So he doesn't recognize immediately the high priest. And Paul also, most likely, had poor eyesight. One of the reasons he was staring so intensely, trying to make out the audience. But Paul didn't realize that this was the high priest But when he realizes that it is, he acknowledges his wrong and he says that is not consistent with the scripture. I blew it. Even then, you know what he he did? He, He confessed his wrong and he corrected himself. And that's how you keep a clean conscience, a clear conscience. You always bring your life back into line with what God shows you. Now, let me, let, me, let me talk a little bit about this. I, I feel like this was um, almost another sermon. But I feel like it was important today uh, to talk about this, uh, to talk about what the Bible says about the conscience. Because your conscience is, is very important. Now, it's not everything, but it's, it's very important. It's, a, it's something that God has given us. In fact, it tells us in Romans uh, 2.15 that your conscience will either excuse you or it will accuse you. You see, what, what, is, what is your conscience? Well, your conscience is that which makes moral judgments about your, about your thoughts, your motives, your actions. It, it, it judges what's right and what's wrong in your life. 
And, and your conscience uh, makes these moral valuations about a variety of things, but, but especially about your, your, your thoughts, your motives, and your actions. And there are at least two levels of conscience. Uh, there's the, 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 the innate conscience, which is given to us by God when we're born. It's at birth. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, when, when he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do naturally the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. See, every person is born into the world with a basic sense of right and wrong, and it's even though they don't have the written word of God, it's innate. That's a default that God gives you when you're born. Adam and Eve demonstrated that when they sinned in the garden by eating from the forbidden fruit. Uh, When they realized that they heard God coming, they realized they were naked. God didn't tell them that nakedness was wrong, but their consciences condemned them and they went and hid. They felt guilty about what they had done. But then there's a, the trained conscience. Now, our conscience also receives and assimilates information from outside, from other sources, other than us, than that innate conscience. And, and they influence our perspective on what is right and what is wrong. You may not realize it, but, but your environment influences what you think is right and wrong. And when, when, you know, when a person's learning to drive, think about what the, the uh, driver's ed teacher or the parent does. They teach the kids, listen, you don't, you don't run through a red light. You don't run a stop sign. Boy, I think there's a whole lot of people who need that go back through that course again. You don't do that. Why? Because it puts you at danger. It puts others at danger. And if you do so, you will be fine. You could even lose your license. In other words, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're building into their minds that this is wrong. It's wrong to run a red light. It's wrong to run that stop sign. And there's penalties that are built into it. And that's, the, that's a major task of parents. Parents have the responsibility of, of influencing the conscience of your children about what's right and what's wrong. You really need to make sure that you're giving them that understanding of what's really right and what's really wrong. And your conscience is like a thermostat. It works wherever you set it. You, you set the standard, and that becomes the, the, the standard for them. It, it, it's important to understand the correlation between the innate conscience and the trained conscience. Because God does give us a default morality, a basics of what is right and wrong. But that's where we began. And with that, it can either be, you can either build upon that, you can, you can uh, influence that with the Word of God, and it can get stronger and clearer and, and more confirmed, or you can move away from that so that that conscience begins to move further and further away from its basic default value. You can change it. You can substitute a whole different set of values there with that conscience. And, and God wants us to train our consciences 
in a way that is consistent with his truth and with his word. In the Bible, there are at least five types of consciences mentioned. At first, there's a pure conscience. Psalm 119, David describes the importance of training the conscience. In verse 9, he asks the question, he says, Listen, how can a young man keep his way pure? Is that a challenge for young men in our society? Keep themselves pure? When you read the statistics about pornography, it is literally terrifying. Terrifying. This is another thing that we have no clue. If statistics are correct, 60% of the men in this room have a pornography problem. If, we're, if we reflect the society as a whole in any way, that's true. I hope it's not. I hope this little group is different. But it's scary. How does a person keep their way clear? Well, get Paul, he gives, I mean, uh, David gives the answer. By keeping it according to your word. Well, 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 what does that do? Look at verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against God. When you treasure God's word in your heart, it becomes the thing by which you are training your conscience. It's the thing that says, listen, that's wrong. You don't go there. You don't need that. It turns your heart away from that which is bad, and it turns it toward which is right. That's why we teach our kids that so early. That verse, Psalm 119.11, I've treasured your word in my heart. See, that's, that's the focus. Only then will it keep you from sinning against God. And it was, listen again, it was Paul's clear conscience that gave him the ability to stand and, and say what he said to those people. When you have a clear conscience, man, you have a liberty. You have a freedom to do what is right in the midst of all that. Paul said the goal of my instruction, 1 uh, Timothy 1.5, is to have a clear conscience. I, I, one of the reasons I instruct people is so that they can have a clear conscience. A pure heart. We need that. We need desperately to train our conscience by the Word of God. To see, because the danger is, is that you can get you can substitute that with other standards, the standards of the world. And do you realize that that is happening? Do you realize that there is a constant, instead of the word of God flooding over our minds, what do we have? We have the, the world's message of the media flooding over our minds. Our children, the conscience of our nation has been changed. We have a whole different conscience in the nation of America today than we had even 20 years ago. Because that, that message, that standard is flowing over the world. Instead of kids being horrified and shamed at the thought of homosexuality, well, it, now it's a crime to even mention that it's bad. We've got a whole different conscience. Our conscience is not informed by the Word of God. Our conscience is informed by society and media. And you see, that happens constantly. And that brings us to a, another conscience. When we move away from a pure conscience, we can go to a weak conscience. Romans chapter 14 talks about that. You know, your conscience is like a circuit breaker. Now, that's a good thing because a circuit breaker is that thing which keeps, you, you know, your, uh, keeps your circuit from drawing too much power and heating up and burning down your house. But you can 
have a circuit breaker that is weak. And when you plug something into it, you plug the vacuum in, you start to plug it, you start to vacuum, what does it do? Well, it clicks off. Y'all ever heard one of those? Every time you try to do something, well, it kicks off. It's a, it's a, it's a breaker that's too sensitive. And, and it's too sensitive. Why? Because it's had something added to it. It's gone beyond the standards of Scripture to add human standards to it. It's my standards. So they're not only offended when someone violates the standards of Scripture, they're, they're offended when, when it violates their standard, what they think is should do or should not do. The example in, in Romans chapter 14 is, is over what people eat. People got in a big fight over what, what you, you eat this or you don't eat that or days that you worship or, or you do these things. You see, things that the Bible doesn't address directly. So we, we, we come up with our own standard about it. We decide what it's going to be. And we, we impose it and we become too sensitive. And here Paul says, accept those people with weak conscience because you've got a strong conscience, you understand that. What you don't want to do in this case is to cause those people to violate their conscience. You don't want them to go against their, you don't want them to get in the habit of violating their conscience. That's a horrible thing that can happen when you violate your conscience. What you want to do is you want to instruct them with truth and with grace so that they can grow and they can mature and they can come to understand we, we really need God's standard. And that's it. So you can have a weak conscience. You can also have a defiled conscience. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. You know, a defiled conscience is one that has become soiled and, and, and tainted and polluted and corrupted, even poisoned. This is describing religious people who defile their conscience because they exchange the standards of God for the standards of the world. And they profess to know God, but it's evident, he says, by their disobedience that they don't know God. We live in a world where people say they're Christians and they're living together, they're getting drunk, they're doing drugs, they're... uh, practicing homosexuality. They're doing all these other things. They say they're Christians. But in reality, their actions show they're not Christians. In their mind, their conscience, they can do it. Why? Because it's become defiled. How do, you, how do you get a defiled conscience? By going against it. Acting contrary to what your conscience tells you. Or... By having it substituted, start after you listen so long to a wrong value, it starts to become your value. You know, I, I'm sure most of us know someone or people that can take just about anything that you say in the workplace or school environment, and they can turn it into a dirty joke or a sexual innuendo. Why? Because when things go into their mind, it comes out twisted and perverted because they got a defiled conscience. That's the way it happens. In America, sin used to slink down the back streets, the back alleys. But now, sin struts down main streets. And a step down from that is a seared conscience. 
1 Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now these are people that have departed from the faith because they have paid attention to deceitful spirits. Doctrines of demons. They've allowed those things to become the information that has shifted the, their, their conscience. And, and they've, they have that memory of that old conscience. They used to have a, you know, an aversion of that, but not now. And I've gone against it so many times that my, my conscience has been seared. You know, when you sear something like with a branding iron, well, you burn it. And when you burn something, uh, it, it doesn't have any feeling anymore. It doesn't have any sensitivity. I remember there was a guy in our, in our uh, grade school class. He had been burned when he was young when he was younger with this, with hot grease and he had a scar all the way down the side of his face, his neck and the side of his body. And he would take safety pins and he would stick them through his skin and hang stuff off of it, you know, to really freak out the girls and some of the guys. (laughs) It didn't bother him. Why? Because he had been burned, cauterized. He was insensitive to it. And that's what happens to the conscience. People ask, how can people do that? They've got a seared conscience. They're not sensitive to it anymore. You know, uh, and then there's an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 speaks of the evil conscience. And the evil conscience is not just a deviation from God's standards. It's an embracing of that which is totally opposite of God. Satan is evil, right? Satan is the antithesis of God. God is light. He is dark. God is righteous. Uh, Satan is evil. And on a human level, when your conscience gets defiled and seared and cut off from everything that is good, It can become evil. It can adopt as its standard the very standards of Satan himself. Because isn't that what Jesus said about many of the Pharisees? He said, you are your father the devil. You've got his standards. You're murderers. You're liars. You look at life like the devil. It's evil. A modern day example of that would be some of these religious groups like Hamas, Hezbollah. Al-Qaeda, Islamic Jihad. I mean, they glorify death to the point of honoring homicidal maniacs as, as martyrs who, who blow themselves up out in public places or fly planes into buildings, killing people, thinking that somehow they're advancing their religion and assuring themselves a place in heaven. You know what that is? That's evil. That's someone who has come to put in place of their conscience that God has given the the very standards of the devil himself. It's evil. And the conscience is a God-given gift. And when it's trained by the word of God, it can be pure. And it can be something that you can rely upon. But when that 
conscience gets away from the word of God, it can become weak. It can become defiled, seared, or evil. In 1811, the U.S. government began collecting and storing letters like the following one dated um, February 6, 1974. It says this, I am sending $10 for blankets I stole during World War II. My mind could not rest. Sorry I'm late. And it was signed, an XGI. And there was a postscript. P.S. I want to be ready to meet God. The U.S. government not only collects and stores these letters, but the Treasury Department established a fund which they labeled the Conscience Fund. And they have been, in all the years that they've been uh, collecting this, uh, it's average about just a little under $7 million a year. People trying to appease their conscience for the things that they've done, taken, stolen. Some years ago, a man by the name of Jesse Jacobs created what he called the Apology Hotline. And it allowed people who were unable to uh, or unwilling to unburden their conscience, uh, but by, you know, talking with people in person, it allowed them to call into an answering machine and make a confession there on, on the machine. And each week, they logged uh, on average about 50 calls. And uh, he says that people apologize from everything from adultery to embezzlement. And, and Jacob says this, quote, The hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt and to some degree to own up to their own misdeeds. I'm just hoping that these people will feel better about themselves just by getting off whatever's been bothering them off their chest. End quote. One, one caller to the hotline remarked, quote, I hope this apology will cleanse me and basically purify my soul. God knows I need it. Do you understand that both the conscience fund and the apology hotline are ways that people are looking for to clean their conscience, to appease their conscience? Listen, there is only one way for you to have a clean conscience. And that is for you to bring your sin to God and confess it. Agree with God about what you have done, that it is wrong according to his standards, that you have violated his law. And then trust in the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who came out of heaven, went to the cross, and took upon himself the penalty the full payment for all of your wrong, took it into the heart of the grave and then rose from the dead. He's alive. So he's saying this morning. And, and that is the only way, friend, that you can find full forgiveness and cleansing. And when you take that 
what you have done and you put it under the blood of Jesus Christ, you know what? It's gone. There's nothing there to bother your conscience. And that's how a person comes to know Jesus Christ and have a clear conscience. It's when you put your faith in him alone. And I'm confident there are people here today you know in the depth of your being. You know deep down inside, no matter what all these other things you've heard on TV and the Internet and people around, you've heard all those kind of things, but you know in the depth of your being that you have sinned against God and that you're guilty before him. And God in his mercy, God in his providence has provided you with the perfect sacrifice, a way to be forgiven, to take that off of your shoulders and to give you life, eternal life. And if you've never trusted him for that, you need to do that today. You need to call upon him and ask him to save you, to take that away from you. You're a Christian, and you know you've not been living the way you ought to live. You know you've got those things going on. You know, you know it. It's bothering you. It's bothered you a lot. You've thought about it. You've been fighting it off for a while. Today, God is bringing it to your attention. Don't defile your conscience. That's what happens when you push it off. Because next week... It won't be as strong. And next week, it won't be as strong. And next month, you won't even remember it. And pretty soon, you won't even be sensitive to that anymore. Don't fight God. Don't fight your conscience. Admit it. And say, God, I want your word. I want your word to be what, def- what trains my conscience. And I want, to be, I want to have a clear conscience. I want to be able to live in this world. Yes, I know this world's not mine. I know I've got a home in heaven. But, but for right now, I've got to live here and I've got to be a representative of Jesus Christ. And I want to do it with full freedom. How about you? Let me just ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. If you want.